out and open to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to hear together the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 1, starting kind of in an odd place because there's not really a sentence break, but starting in verse 13 and going all the way to verse 23. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. For he, God, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the firstborn of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for the full, all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this day when we remember how far we've come and how far we have to go. But we look at that this morning in light of the reality of what your son has already done. I pray, Father, that you would use your word to search our hearts and our lives, to draw us closer to you, to form in us your kingdom and make us something more like your son Jesus by the time we're done. But we need the help of your spirit to do this. So we cry out saying, Spirit, come work in our midst. Do what you desire to do. Say what you desire to say. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but I went to an all-black school. Oh, at least until my brother and I got there. <laughs> um, uh, and we weren't very well received when we got there. I was in second grade at the time. And it was that spring that Alex Haley's Roots came out as a miniseries on TV. And the portrayal of slavery 
and the portrayal of the experiences of those who were ripped out of their culture, ripped out of um, their lives and societies and families and brought to the United States. The suffering of Kunta Kinte as he uh, his back was, scar was scarred and as his foot was cut off was so vivid and so powerful to the descendants of my classmates, the descendants of former slaves, that they really needed a place to vent their frustration and it went towards me and my brother. And I, I learned some things during that season. One of the things I learned is, you know that old saying, time heals all wounds? It's a lie. It's not true. Sometimes scars left untended can be so strong, so deep, so powerful that they last for generations. As a boy, my best friend was Clyde James. He was my next door neighbor and we lived in a secluded neighborhood. And so he and I were the kind of friends that, that we did everything together and we didn't have to do anything. We didn't have to say anything. We could just be together and enjoy each other's presence. When Bob Marley's Uprising album came out, he was the first person I knew who got the cassette of it and he put it in his tape player and we listened to that whole thing, side A, flipped it over side B. And we didn't say a word, we just listened to the whole thing. And then we turned it over again and sang along every word as we listened to it back the second time. That's the kind of friends we were. But one day he had given it some thought. He said, you know, we can be friends here, but I can't know you at school. At school you mustn't recognize me. I knew that there was a difference in the color of our skin, but, and I understood. I didn't want him to be bullied the way I was at school, but it broke my heart. And I guess what I wonder is if what Paul says here, that Christ has done this powerful universal work of reconciliation, if he, if Christ has been, in, if God in Christ has been reconciling the world to Himself, how can we be so broken? And how is it that we are so competent at using tradition and cultural boundaries and religions to make sure that we keep things the way they are? I'm afraid that we've shrunken the cross. We, when we talk about the cross, we talk about it in, in terms of the forgiveness of sins. And you might present the gospel, Jesus died for your sins. And if you accept him, you'll have eternal life. And you'll, everything you will have said will be entirely true, but you won't have told the whole truth. You see, we, we forget about, we understate, and for, perhaps for very good reasons, the impact that the cross has not only on our sins, but also on our wounds and our shame. Hurts are the ways that we have been shaped by each other's sins. Shame is the way that we feel bad about the ways that we've been hurt. To ignore these things, to ignore shame, to ignore our wounds, is basically to say that the gospel is good news to victimizers and no news at all to victims. It's strange that we have taken the cross and made it so that it only pertains to the privileged. 
We've used it to get us off the hook of the very real stuff. Because we're four generations out of slavery at best, and every step forward has added scars. We celebrate Juneteenth each year because we're remembering that on that date in, 19, in 1865, the emancipation was announced in Texas. But we forget that it was in January of 1863 that the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. In other words, what we're saying every time we celebrate the liberation of the slaves is that for two and a half years, slaves in the United States labored waiting for the announcement of what was already and nobody told them. There were people living and longing, waiting for the announcement of already. And there are still people living and longing and waiting for the announcement of already. And when we're at our most normal, we are resisting and obscuring the hope that's already here. And when we're at our very best, it seems like we're trotting forward towards already. But Colossians tells us what God has done already. We are living, we like to say, in the already but not yet. In fact, we're living in the already, but we ain't, just ain't living like it yet. If, if the kingdom isn't here, somebody send the Spirit back. And if the kingdom is here, if Christ is establishing His kingdom here, why aren't we living like it? Paul writes to a people on the outer edge of Roman rule. Colossae was, a, was built on an otherworldly, strange landscape with these deep cerulean blue mineral springs with steam that rose. It's a place where the Lycus River ran into the rocks and disappeared, and the people thought it went into the netherworld. They believed that they lived in this, on the edge between this world and death. And in their minds, their traditional religions taught that their lives were caught in the balance between competing gods, equals of good and evil, and that they were playing some part in trying to eke out, hopefully, their own salvation and hopefully their own rescue, that they would make it. They lived also with the fear that they wouldn't live up to the expectations of their Roman oppressors. They sought things like emperor worship to please their captors, their rulers. They followed asceticism. They went over and above in religion just to try and keep things right. And we do it too. In the name of things like patriotism, tradition, and religion, we follow rules and rituals at the expense of relationships. We claim that we want peace, but really we just want quiet. We say that we want freedom, but we're wrestling for control. We say that we want order, but really we're just dealing with our lives like it's a great big giant Jenga game, and we're afraid that we're going to pull out that one piece that will make everything fall apart. Paul shows us that this life is not a battle of competing equals, that Christ reigns over this world with a purpose. And he begins by telling us that we in Christ belong to a different kingdom and serve a different king. Isn't it strange to think that 
God as your king saved you from the country that you were taught to love. In the second century letter to Diognetus, the writer describes Christians and he says, every nation to them was like a fatherland and every fatherland like a strange country. They understood something I fear that we've lost, which is that Christ is our king and wherever he is is our country that we're called to learn to be at home wherever he brings us, and yet to treat every place that he brings us as though it's not our home. We're in a different kind of kingdom, and it's the kingdom of his beloved son. He goes on and it shows the way that this kingdom reflects the character of this king, and this kingdom therefore shapes our identity. The kingdom of the beloved son is the place where the citizens become beloved children. We're told that he has redeemed us. In other words, he's recovered our value. He's bought us back, and that removes the shame so that we can stand before God. He's also given us the forgiveness of sins. He's paid our debts so that there's no barrier between us and God any longer. We can not only stand upright, we can also come near because of what Christ has done. And he goes through and he lists these seven attributes of Christ, and that character forms his kingdom. We see that this king is the image of the invisible God. That is, that Jesus shows us the intents when God gives his commands. Thou shalt not kill is not simply stand your ground. It is give yourself for the other. That the, the command to, to keep the Sabbath holy is not you gotta follow this rule of stop doing stuff, but that you give rest to others. He's not only that, that, well, as the Torah made flesh, Christ shows us God's heart towards us. But even more, he's the firstborn of creation. The firstborn sibling took the father's place, represented the father, took on the father's interests, and managed the father's resources to make sure that the other siblings had what was due them or what they needed from the household resources. The fact that your inheritance is being managed by someone who is willing to give his life for you means that you're in incredibly good hands. And it changes the way that you live. It frees you from worry, from fear, from competitiveness. We see he's also the creator of all things. And what this tells us is that creation is good, it's valuable, and it's his. And we're stewards of it. If Jesus' fingerprints on everyone that you have ever met how does that change the way that we leave our fingerprints on everyone that we ever meet? They belong to him. Not only that, but he's the sustainer, which lifts our fear and our fight for control or power. All of our material needs are met in Christ. It changes the way we live. He is also the head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. 
In other words, Jesus is not only your past, he's also your future. You want to know what eternity is going to be like? It's going to be like Jesus. You want to know what your home is in the future? It's in Jesus. You want to know what what you can lean on and what you can trust, not only in life, but also in death. He is trustworthy. Your need for security is met in him. He occupies first place, Paul tells us. And so we don't need to fight for it. And we don't need to fear displacement. There is one supremacy, and that is Jesus who is Lord. That's the only supremacy that there is. There is a radical hierarchy in the universe. It runs like this. Jesus is Lord, and we ain't. Christ's kingdom is not a future abstraction. It's meant to be our current address. We're to live in it out of the declaration that is powerful and prophetic and insane and stands against every principality and power in this world, in this present age. Jesus is Lord. So where do you live, first of all? Where do you live if tradition, cultural expectations, and superstitions have a stronger hold on you than Jesus? It's time to be moved you can't stay here and go with Jesus. You can't. you got to choose who you're going to serve. So we see that we've, we're in the kingdom of his beloved son, but now we also see that we live at the center of God's reconciling work in Christ. And that starts in verse 17. I'm sorry, in verse 19. There is joy in doing something lavish for someone you love. Here we find that it's the, it's the Father's good pleasure to make his fullness dwell in his Son. In the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews we learn that, that, that Jesus endured the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. In Matthew's Gospel we find that out of joy, the merchant who found the pearl of great price sold everything to be able to purchase this one thing. That joy... That motivates, that joy that motivated God to send his son and Christ to go to the cross and then God to purchase you. That joy is you. You're the delight of God. You're what he's after. You're what he sought. To God, the equation is him plus you equals joy. This reconciliation, we find, involves a change of places. Christ had every right to eternal enthronement and praise. And he gave up those privileges for you. He took on our human limitations and disadvantages. The church fathers said that only what is assumed can be redeemed. Only what Christ took on himself can be redeemed. If this is the case... It affects how we participate in Christ's redemptive work. When Christ's redemptive love, his earnest love for us, doesn't lead to identification with others, we've come to a dangerous place. Christ's love leads us into the lives of others. And as we go there, we find we begin to see privileges to which we were blind. 
I've thought about this a lot this summer. I know that you all have too. But I thought about how I walked through my grandma's neighborhood and lived to tell about it, but Trayvon Martin didn't. And I thought about how I jogged down a road and lived to tell about it, but Ahmaud Aubrey didn't. And I thought about how I'd been pulled over for a broken taillight and lived to tell about it, and Fernando Castile did not. And how I went to bed and slept soundly last night and got up this morning, but Brianna Taylor didn't. To join Christ's reconciling work involves putting our privileges in the service of those whose privileges have been taken away. It's an exchange of places. It's a participation in the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of our brothers and sisters. So reconciliation requires justice, in verse 20, and something more, because the cross is the way that God brings peace between heavenly and earthly powers. Does that seem crazy? I hope that bothers you, because it bothers me. How is the, the cross and the shed blood of Christ a fix? How is a miscarriage of justice going to bring justice? How is wholeness supposed to come out of that kind of brokenness? I think we've gotten numb to this idea, but I remember my daughter. She was maybe three or four years old, and we were reading the Easter story together. And we were reading it through in this children's Bible. It's illustrated. And we got to the crucifixion, and she screamed, and she said, Why are they hurting Jesus? I realized I'd become cold to something that used to really get me. She taught me something valuable that day that I hope I never forget. The cross is not something that we're supposed to get comfortable with. It's not something that we're meant to get used to. In order to be reconciled, we need a reconciliation that's as deep as the rift itself. We need to address the fact that at creation we were created male and female in the image of God who's one. And in our universe, in our unity and diversity, we were supposed to reflect together the glory of the triune God. We were deceived into thinking that God didn't have our best interest in mind. And so that story is unfolded through Adam and Cain and evil Lamech and the Tower of Babel. Rather than obeying the command to multiply and fill the earth, we gathered and built a tower to take the heavens. Not declaring the name of the Lord, we sought to make a name for ourselves. And as a result, God scattered us. Our languages were confounded, our families were scattered, and the curse was solidified. But God made a promise to call a family to bless the nations so the nations could again be a family. To accomplish this, 
God brought the descendants of Abraham into Egypt, he into slavery, and he used the blood of a lamb to bring a mixed multitude out of slavery through the baptism of the Red Sea to the new covenant at Sinai and make a new nation. And there to remove our sin, our sickness and death and shame, the Lord made daily ordinances of blood sacrifice. We needed continual atonement so that the Holy Lord could dwell with us as a holy people. And what was temporary and local was preparation for something eternal and global. God spoke of a future when his lifted up one who was so marred would be the vehicle of sprinkling clean many nations. He spoke in Isaiah 11 of a day when his servant's resting place would be filled with glory in such a way that the people would come, that the nations would come that we would see peace between all people and all creation on God's holy mountain, that we would dwell together on the mountain of the Lord. And in the fullness of of time, God sent his son. He sent his son to reconcile us by harnessing what was primary in us, our sin and our rebellion. You see... We display God's reconciling reality by first displaying the way in which we were enemies of God. This is the great irony of the cross and the great irony of the display. And it's the reason why we give testimonies. It's the reason because we are signs, we are symbols of what God does. And he does it from our brokenness. And when we cover these things up and live as though our hurt and wounds and shame don't exist, we're creating an unreconciling God in our own image. God revealed who I am by allowing me to encounter God incarnate, walking in flesh, wrapped in meekness and the finitude of human form, and seeing how I respond to his unbridled love. If I believe that I am welcoming, accepting, tolerant, sweet, Jesus shows me that I'm a hypocrite. If if I believe that I am moral, upright, and holier than the rest of them, encountering Jesus shows me that I'm twice the child of the devil. The thing is that rather than allow him to fix me, it's easier for me and for you to shout, away with him, we have no God but Caesar. We would sooner kill him than let him deal with what his goodness shows about us. But the crucifixion not only shows, reveals our war against God, it also reveals our war against each other. The crucifixion of God incarnate shows what we think of each other. The cross displays my bigotry, my hatred, and my prejudice. Because if I've never done anyone wrong, explain those wounds on him. And if I've never done anything wrong, why are those wounds on you? The cross shows my sins have hurt others. The cross reveals our misplaced rage. 
The cross makes vain our denials of the inequities on death row. The cross shows us that the innocent are often falsely accused, condemned, and sentenced to die. The cross shows us that our pursuit of relief is far more powerful than our pursuit of justice. We believe that if we can dodge all charges of prejudice, if we can just show that we've never gained anything from our prejudice, the cross shows the world that I have benefited from the exploitation of someone else. In fact, it is so impossible to be reconciled to God while ignoring someone else's pain that God has made it only possible for us to be saved by acknowledging that someone suffered on our behalf. I want to say that to you again. It is so impossible to be reconciled to God while ignoring the pain others have suffered because of us that God has made it only possible to be saved by acknowledging the pain another has suffered for us. You cannot disconnect these two. To be in Christ requires that you look with dead-eyed realism at the hurt and the suffering of other people. And if nothing else, at least be able to declare that it's real. One of the most powerful things you can say to someone is is to be able to say, I'm sorry. That should have never happened to you. We then also display God's healing work. Friendship with God depends on our, requires that we see that we were his enemies. And that causes us to come and to fall before him. And once we come there, we discover that he was not only wounded for our transgressions, he was also bruised for our iniquities. Surely he bore our sorrows, and by his stripes we are healed. The cross of Christ, Paul tells us, is the place where the alienated become the beloved children of God. The place where enemies become family. The outpouring of the Spirit on the church was Babel played backwards. The nations that were divided in misunderstanding become united in voicing together the praise in the name of the Lord. They, as the prophet Zephaniah said, now work together with one shoulder and one tongue working together and praying together and praising together, declaring the name of the Lord. Well, if the purpose of the cross is to make a new people of God from among the nations, then why is Sunday morning at 11 o'clock still our most divided hour, our most segregated hour? If the Holy Spirit gives us boldness to speak and ability to understand, why do so many in the church feel silenced and misunderstood? Can a fractured church 
Can a fractured church do the ministry of reconciliation? This can only be done as we come to terms with the ways that we have fought against God and the ways that we have fought against each other. It can only be done as I have the courage to admit it, that I have been your enemy and open myself to love you when you have every reason not to return it. This is what we're called to do in verse 23. If indeed you continue by in faith. Faith is the determination to live by the laws of heaven now. Faith is a determination to live by the laws of heaven now. The world will malign you for it. You'll become vulnerable because of it. The world will take advantage of you because of it. The world might kill you because of it. Faith is the determination to live under the laws of heaven now. Faith will always demand that you become inconvenienced by the present for the sake of the already. And the more we surrender to that reality, the more the already that's in Christ becomes visible to us and to those around us. One day in the schoolyard, a group of kids corralled me and they were bringing me over to the cement lid of the school septic tank where they were planning to beat me up. There was a circle tight around me. And all of a sudden there was a roar. I wondered, what is that? And it was cl- the, 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 um, the crowd parted like the Red Sea and out stepped my friend Clyde. And he bent down, he picked up a cinder block and I wondered what he was going to do and he smashed it against the ground. And he looked around and he said, if you fight him, you're going to have to fight me too. I was amazed and shocked and relieved. And the kids were saying, what? Are you, are you friends with him? What are you doing, Clyde? He said, yeah, that's my friend. And you're going to have to fight us both. I was so... It did something in my heart that my friend proved true to me. I think there's something of the cross in that. There's something of the cross that heals us as we discover that our Father, who might have been ashamed of us, has always stood and fought for us. He didn't just wait for a crisis to begin to love us or fight for us or declare his love for us. He always had our best interest in mind. He has always fought for you, always sought to keep you. I wonder if that steadfastness is shown in us. After the protest and the murder at Charlottesville a couple of years ago, and after the administration's minimizing of white supremacy, I had an occasion where I believe now four different very dear friends, all of them black, all of them ministers of the gospel, came to me and asked me, where were our white brothers and sisters in Christ? We went through the election and we heard the rhetoric and we knew what was going on. 
And now we see this happening, and we're afraid for our country and for our children, and we feel like we don't belong here. It's ironic. Each of those men were also retired military. And they said, of this country, we feel like we have no home here anymore. That made it even more poignant to me. They said, we thought certainly our white evangelical brothers and sisters would have our backs. Faith involves forsaking our privileges for one another. Over the years, I've listened to stories of a lot of people. And what I've found is in a lot of ways, we have matching scars. We, we got them somewhat differently, but they're in the same places, and often they're the same size, and it's a strange, compelling, mysterious thing to meet someone who seemed different from you in every single way. But all of their scars match yours. You know, these scars, they, they could connect you. They could turn you into allies. They could turn enemies into friends. These scars could also be a way of uniting you in hurting the way that you've been hurt. I've seen both happen. Sadly, Though we can heal, we can wound, and we do wound with our wounds, we have no power to heal with our wounds. Imagine there was someone with wounds just like yours. Someone who who matched your wounds scar by scar and hurt by hurt. And, And what if they matched not because they were his, but they were yours? What if this person not simply wounded with his wounds, but healed with his wounds? Have you experienced rejection, betrayal, false accusation, denial? Have you been maligned? Have you been assigned false motives? Have you been made guilty by association? If you have... You have a savior with matching scars. One who stands pleading for you in the holiest place has on him all the wounds that you have and all the wounds that I have. And because the one who has loved you humbled himself, you no longer need to be humiliated. And because he was rejected, you can be received. And because he took those wounds to heaven, you no longer need to be ashamed. He has freed you so much that you're even capable of self-sacrificial love. The question is continuing in faith. Do I love Christ enough to give myself to others? Am I crazy enough to live, not by the rules and the standards of this kingdom, 
but by the laws of the kingdom of the beloved Son. Christ is calling you and us to live out the already. But what wounds keep us from doing it? What scars keep us from pressing forward? What are the ways we feel like, I don't know if I could handle being rejected again? I don't know if I could handle one more person leaving the church. I don't know if I could handle one more person saying, Pastor, you need to learn to preach. I don't know if I could handle one more criticism of how I handled that. What are the things, the wounds, that keep us from trusting? Those are the wounds he wants to take from us. What about the shame? Those places where we wished we'd done better, or we'd wish we'd done the right thing at all. What about those places where we had higher expectations for ourselves than God did? What about those places where we thought that our, as we've been told recently, our finitude was sin? What about those places keep us from stepping out again and loving and giving ourselves to someone else? Those are the places that Christ is bearing for you now. He's already done it. The question is, will you bring those things to him? Will you surrender your life to him? Will you give all that you are to him? We have nothing to bring. We have nothing that he doesn't have except our brokenness, our sins. I, I was uh, asked by someone, you know, is it okay to come to church with unconfessed sin? I said, yes, but it's a shame to leave with it. It's a, is it okay to come to church with hurt? Yes, but leave it here too. Is it okay to come to church with shame? Please, don't take it home with you. I know there's a lot I need him to do in me. I know there's a lot he desires to do in us. Let's give him a moment to do that now as we pray together. Father, we thank you so much for all the ways that you are not only great, but also good. We thank you, Lord, that not only are you able, but you also care. That you not only created us, but you also saved us for yourself. Wash us and cleanse us and make us whole. We bring all these things to you this morning, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.